Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm good. So we're sitting here in the Streamtime studio, which we've already discussed in a previous podcast that it's not necessarily a studio. That's right. It's a totally different, totally different episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want me to go into a game, do you? Well, talk about Streamtime more, but... Well, we should thank Streamtime because uh, I guess without their partnership and, and their kind of help, we wouldn't be able to do half of what we're doing at the moment. I think we've done more... When this episode goes live, we've done more in a month than we did in about four or five months last year <laughs> and that says a lot for our efficiency this year and it also says a lot about our inefficiency last year yes so i think our, our preferred inefficiency i would say that's true yeah maybe. True. there's some other variables involved but so we're sitting here with tom carey tom for who is the creative director of landor hello hello lovely to be here thank you for coming in so we there's a lot to talk about with you um, and rather than do the, the typical sort of bio, I almost want to just like pull apart the, the first, you know, the first, how, how long have you been in the creative industries? 2009 you left. Yeah, that sounds about right. So nine years, if I'm asked, is right. You've had this amazing kind of whirlwind of a career, or at least from, from my perspective, that's what it looks like. And it's the, it's the sort of story uh, that when I was talking to someone about you coming on, I was like, he's, he's got the story that when, when you're teaching students, you say, this could be you. <laughs> How does that feel to you, though? I don't really think about it like that, I guess. I guess when you're working and you're in it and you kind of love it so much that you kind of forget how long you've been doing it or, you know, one thing leads to the next. And before you know it, you're nine years in and you're on Australian Design Radio. <laughs> <laughs> you've made it. It would yeah. have been super weird if you thought of that nine years ago because we didn't even exist. So it would be pretty weird. <laughs> it would have been amazing. So let's start at the beginning. Yes. You've, you've just left a three-year degree from Kingston University, yep. which is southwest London, and you've left there to join A, a plus B. A, a and B or A plus B? A plus B. A plus B Studio. Yeah. They've um, now changed their name because... Everybody kept calling them A and B. Ah, which, which I just oh, did. Oh, yeah. Did. <laughs> Perfect example. <laughs> so they, um, they're, they're, at that point, they're in the startup phase, I would say. Yeah, I think they've been going a couple of months before I joined. Wow, okay. Right. So that's with uh, Benji uh, Wiedemann. 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 Yeah. And Alex Lamp. Lamp. <laughs> Thank you. Who have obviously now changed to Wiedemann Lamp. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Much easier to say. Well, now, now, yeah. that, now <laughs> that I know how to say it. <laughs> but... You know, so it seems like, so you've got that job, you've, you've come out of uni and you're mm-hmm. like, bang, got the job. But you were telling me a story that, that there was there's something like a hundred emails that happened around that time. Yeah. So when I was at college and before I started uni, I had quite a few kind of summer jobs and part-time jobs working in sports shops and supermarkets. And I cannot tell you how much I hated them. And <laughs> by the time I got around to uni of first year, I was just so determined that this was going to be my job and I wasn't going to have to go and... I just don't want to work at the sports store. Yeah, I mean, working at Sports Direct, that was pretty bad. I, I had a similar thing. When I was at college, I was working at Woolworths. And, I, and every time I'd turn up at Woolworths, I'd be, I'd be like, I've only got six months left and then I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. I was basically just walking around the shop picking up clothes that people had thrown on the floor and putting them back on hangers. And I just, yeah, I couldn't bear to do that any longer. <laughs> Job satisfaction? Yeah, so when I got to the first year of uni, I was just so determined to get out there and I was like, I'm not going to work this summer, I'm just going to get an internship. Trying to get an internship, you're kind of competing with all the other students out there and I just emailed almost every single design agency that I could find. It was definitely over 100 emails and 
everybody did not get back to me um, for so long and I'd almost given up hope and then I got one email response. A guy called Mark Wheatcroft who worked at Hattrick and yeah. so lucky that it was Hattrick because they were incredible. I don't know how well known they are over here but it was Jim Sutherland's studio so he's won about a gazillion pencils and at the time they were kind of at their peak. They were working with National History Museum and came in, got an internship, did three weeks there. They asked me to come back and... I remember having lunch one day and they had a consultant in uh, who I was kind of chatting to and she said, oh, I could probably introduce you to somebody at Pentagram. And my eyes just kind of <laughs> lit up <laughs> and I basically hounded her for about a month until she kind of did introduce it's me. It's like, to oh my God, I, I don't know anyone at Pentagram. I wish I didn't show off that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she introduced, me to, um, she introduced me to Pentagram. I emailed them, I got an internship and then, yeah, it was kind of funny. Everybody answers your emails after you've got an internship from Pentagram on your CV. So it all kind of opened up for there and one thing led to the next and I just got another internship. I Were you sending them from your Pentagram email? Like, no, but I was quite good at name dropping. So I kind of, <laughs> the first line of my email would be, oh, I'm currently interning at Pentagram and was looking for something else. Perfect, and just in the subject. Uh, exactly, just, yeah. Just, <laughs> I'm currently just throw Pentagram in at the very beginning. But it totally worked. It works for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I can kind of everything where I've got to today, I can kind of lead all the way back to, yeah, that one email. I have a pretty shocking email story that I've blocked out of my memory until you just brought up yours. And mine was, I was using Hotmail back in the day, if you'll indulge my short story. And I was just attaching the file, just using the web browser. And if you remember the internet in Australia at the time, you know, it was shocking. Still. But everyone's told me, well, you need to have like a 30 page portfolio. So anyway, unbeknownst to me, I'm trying to upload this CMYK full folder nice. that was way over the the limit but the way that it worked back then is the email sat in my outbox but it it, it never sent apparently according to the outbox because i couldn't leave but the way hotmail acted at the time is it did send those emails but not with the attachment and it didn't tell me that it sent so what was happening is i'm pressing send and then i'm going away from my computer i'm coming back going send you bastard send send oh, so this one person <laughs> in recruitment i can't remember what advertising agency it was i wish i did just, I just spammed them like 30 or 40 times in one evening. And then I came back the next morning with just, would you stop fucking sending me your portfolio? <laughs> you will never work here. <laughs> and that was pretty, pretty, I was pretty gutted. Small industry as well. I don't know who it is. I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I knew who that was. Anyway. So to, 2009, so this is, so you're, you're finishing, you've done some internship. Yep. At the same time, you're also picking up DNAD student uh, yellow pencil mm -hmm. and the DNAD Adobe Future Creative Award. Yep. Which would, it, is that still around? I have no idea. Could have just been one year, but I just read the story that, that you, were the, you know, they, they gave it to you and they were like, well, that's, that's it. That's all we need to do. No, I think um, Jim Sutherland was actually judging that one. So oh, right. I don't know if that helped or not. Ah, but, um, it's all intertwined. Yeah, it's a nice one. Anything to do with DNAD, I'm happy with. So, <laughs> How how does that feel for you? Like you're you're leaving, you're leaving uni. You've just got these amazing awards. You had you had a really good internship. Feeling confident, scared. I think I was just feeling excited. Um, I'd made a decision in my head, having been to a few of the established agencies, people like Pentagram, that I really wanted to join a startup agency that I could help kind of build their name and build their reputation, rather than kind of just keep something that had been going for so long. So. When I was at Pentagram, Kirsty, who's now Benji's fiance, was working there and uh, she put me in touch with Benji. I actually had to deliver a love letter um, at my first interview that she'd written to him and I had to pass over to him, which was pretty weird. But um, <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, it was a nice start and they got me in. Uh, they offered me an internship and I think somebody else had offered me a job at the same time. So I emailed Benji and just said, oh, you know, I don't think I'll be able to do the internship. And they kind of emailed back and just going, well, we'll offer you a job instead. So, wow, yeah, it was where I wanted to work. But yeah, I was so happy to get that. So they had a really interesting thing, I think, at the time, which was this A plus B equals connected. So this uh, audience plus the brand equals connected. Can you talk more about that? Is that something they had at that time? or I think that was probably something that was quite early on mm-hmm. um, in the start. I think what was really exciting about them was they both left, left Lewis Mobley and Benji was the kind of design director. So he was kind of an expert in branding and packaging. Alex, I think, was head of digital. So there was this really nice combination of the two. And that's kind of where the plus came from. Um, I think they've kind of just built on that and built on that, built on that. And the connected work that they brought out recently, I think, is a kind of manifestation of all of that thinking that they've done over the last nine or 10 years. And they had some amazing clients. And, you know, during that time, uh, you got to work on, for instance, BBC, Channel 4, Science Museum, uh, Royal Institution of Great Britain, Universal Music. That must have been pretty amazing at that time just to be working on so many different huge clients yeah i mean as a when startup I, yeah well when we started we literally didn't even have a table it was we were sitting on boxes we didn't have a printer for the first two years so right. <laughs> the most terrifying thing is sending stuff to print when you've never seen it printed out before oh wow so that was pretty fun and yeah when we started we were kind of talking about we had no real name clients and all we really used to do was a business card on a website and that was kind of as far as it went and that was, it was probably like that for the first year And we then got the opportunity to pitch on a job for the design council and we wanted it so much. We worked the entire weekend. We just built this incredible deck and went and presented it. They loved it, but they kind of chose the other agency because they'd been working with them for the last few years. And we were kind of broken. We were absolutely gutted. This was our chance and it hadn't kind of happened. But a few weeks later, we got asked to pitch for something for the Science Museum and they wanted to kind of see our process about how we would approach an exhibition design, which we'd never done before. But the lucky thing was that we'd done this pitch for the design council a few weeks ago. So we, we used that pitch and we showed it to them. This is how we would approach something. And we won the Science Museum job. So it was a permanent exhibition in the Science Museum. And from there, that's kind of where it, you know, it spirals. So got the Science Museum, then Imperial War Museum, and they introduced to somebody at BBC and then Channel 4. And it kind of just goes from there. You just need that one little break. Mm. And now, yeah, their list of clients is yeah, incredible. You moved to Australia in 2012. Yeah. How did that come about? Because did it have something to do with uh, Oliver Maltby? Yeah. So um, when I was a student, I think when I was doing the DNAD project, I had met Ollie through one of these many internships. And Ollie invited me to come and work in the Chasers studio uh, one or two days a week while I was there. So that was great. I was just sitting in, their, sitting in their studio. They were doing stuff for the Royal Mail and all these amazing clients. And I was just sitting there kind of trying to come up with stupid little uni projects. Um, but one of them was the DNAD one, which I showed Ollie to, and he kind of mentored me and helped work on the idea a little bit and gave me some really good advice. So I'd met him at that stage, and I just stayed in touch with him. Like, we'd go for a beer every six months or, you know, just once a year or something. And then three years later, I'd been working at A plus B for three years, and Ollie was just like, oh, should we go for a beer? Random Thursday night, met up in London, uh, having a beer outside, and he just said, um, oh, I'm moving to Australia. I've been offered the creative director job uh, into brand Melbourne. I was like, ah, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And then he said, yeah, I can kind of B 
build the team that I want. So, you know, if you want to come over, and I'm like, yes. No <laughs> way. How, how many beers in were you at this point? I think it was a couple. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that many. It was, but I'd never even considered moving to Australia before then. I think London was the kind of center of the design world. And I thought, yeah, I'm never going to leave. That was the rest of my life, kind of weirdly. And until somebody offers you that and says, do you want to move to the other side of the world to come and work with me on this, these projects? And you're like, of course. Uh, so it was an incredible opportunity. And I've got this horrible thing in me where you just can't say no to amazing things like that. So <laughs> yeah. it kind of shook up my entire life. And I booked a one-way ticket to Australia. I had a long-term girlfriend at the time. That was a bit awkward. I was only going to stay for six months and go back. But then I, th I think... How's I'd that relationship going? Oh, brilliant, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny. On my first day, Ollie introduced me to uh, my now fiancé, who was working right. at Instagram Melbourne. And so, yeah, it really changed my life. Now I'm getting married to an Australian. Uh, I've been here for six years. I'm a permanent resident. So, yeah, that one beer kind of led to quite a lot. So it feels like mm. you did a lot in university to kind of build a really strong base because, you know, you keep on sort of mentioning, oh, this happened in uni or this... How, how did you do that? Like, what, what would you suggest to uni students now? Like, to, what, what's, the, what's the trick? I think the main trick was going for a drink on a Friday night. Right. Because <laughs> once designers have had a couple of beers, they're um, very generous and they'll, especially in London, you go to a pub and there'll be three or four different design studios there. So you'll get introduced to other designers. They'll promise you, oh, I'll introduce you to my friend here that works there. And yeah, I kind of meet somebody on Friday, have a few beers. They said they'd give me their business card and I'd probably email them that night and try and get something lined up for the next week. And yeah, I think that was that was the best. So you, you were just tenacious. I mean, obviously there's there's talent there as well, but like the tenacity was kind of like you were you were hungry. Very hungry. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just think about Sports Direct and I was like, I need to get this internship. It's got to happen. <laughs> I, I was a dish pig for a short amount of time, so I know I know your feeling. Yeah. I remember washing my last dish and thinking, I'm never coming back here. I will do anything else other than this. Totally. Yeah, you get those you get those feelings. So, but I mean, we are talking about socialising, so it's kind of like a soft skill, right? Mm. Like it is it is you know being someone that people want to work with. Yeah. So it's not just the book I think I think I can't remember who it was it might have been a really old Sagmeister quote that I've got bookmarked somewhere but it's like no one wants to work with a talented asshole and so like it does sound like you know being in the right place at the right time being talented or mm. obviously mandatory but lots of people get into those situations but it feels like the relationship like was really really important the relationship that you kept yeah. with Ollie that wasn't about you needing something at the mm. time or asking him for something but when the time came he offered you something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've got so many friends that I met at those internships. And that's what I'd really encourage students to do now. Go out, like try these internships. You meet so many different people. I can think I've probably got nine or 10 friends that like really good friends that I met while I was an intern. I've never really worked with them. I just met them on this internship. We became friends. We'd have a beer. And yeah, it's just, it's a nice way of meeting new people. Mm. So you come to Australia. Yeah. Leave your, your girlfriend at the time. Meet your future fiance. Yeah. You're in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, and you're there for a little while working at Interbrand. I think about 18 months. Yeah. And then you moved to Sydney. How, how did that happen? So I think me and Ollie are kind of similar in a way that we're both quite ambitious. We're quite competitive. And with Sydney and Melbourne at Interbrand at the time, um, the CEO was in Sydney, Chris and Mike were in Sydney. So that was kind of the center of everything. So all those really cool projects that would come in, Sydney would kind of get them first. Right. And I Bastards. kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. After 18 months, me and Ollie were kind of 
desperate to get on some of these jobs. So I think we basically kind of, I think Ollie demanded and I kind of just followed him up there as well. <laughs> right. So it worked out all right, yeah. So you, you get to Sydney and some of the, the clients you're working on are Telstra, uh, Opera Australia and obviously Sydney Opera House. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to talk about that Opera Australia job that you did uh, where you worked with that fashion photographer, George Anthony. He created some amazing, visually arresting kind of images um, that really made me personally look at opera in a whole different way, particularly the way that the, the O and the A were used. Was that part of what you were doing or was that something that was done beforehand? So the year before I moved up there, I think the rebrand had happened, mm-hmm. but there was also amazing art direction for that first year. And I think I was the poor bastard that had to come in afterwards and do the second year. <laughs> now it's yours. <laughs> yeah, that, that second album that nobody wants to do. And uh, yeah, I remember looking at some of, um, it was Eric who'd art directed the first year and yeah, the, the shots were just kind of breathtaking. I was like, oh my God, yeah, how am I gonna, am I gonna get anywhere near this? There's um, that Madam, Madam Butterfly one, I think. Where yeah, so that's one that I worked on. Right. Yeah, that's the second year. So how, talk, talk to me about like taking those shots. You're, you're art directing those shots? Yeah. So maybe just stepping back a, a couple of stages from the, from the rebrand, the kind of strategy and the whole point of the project was to set Opera free. And it was about moving from what had previously been kind of really staged photos pretty much on the actual theater floor that were just yep. used for the artwork. And then trying to make them, yeah, target people like you that had never almost thought about opera before. I still haven't actually seen an opera, but that's... Obviously didn't work that well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but try and treat them more like movie posters um, yeah. so they feel much more contemporary. Mm. And what we would get is, I think had to do about roughly 10 shots so you would get the kind of synopsis of what it's about obviously i had no idea about opera so you've got to really learn what these about um come up with a concept which was literally just sketched find some bits of reference presented those to the client and then you've got this i'm pretty sure it was one day shoot to try and capture all of these shots in the same day and for, um, for all different operas yeah yeah wow so it's a lot could have been two days i can't remember maybe i'm just <laughs> glorifying it a bit <laughs> it was not much but the amazing th- thing about working with George is that he had three assistants and he's so professional that you you kind of give one little bit of direction and you have one guy up a ladder one guy with ropes other thing moving around and before you know it the entire thing had changed and it just worked beautifully but it was a really cool shoot and at times for the for the foul shot we were in a car park setting off red smoke bombs and um like you literally couldn't see anyone the entire car park was just full of red smoke (laughs) to then the last shot of the day which was the one that i was most excited about was the madam butterfly one um which we shot in a youth hostel swimming pool uh near central station oh wow and the swimming pool is about two meters by two meters absolutely tiny hideous and the uh yeah the poor lady that was in the pool was in there for a little while freezing cold it was getting quite late and again we were kind of setting mist off and stuff like that and it was just amazing to see how you could turn a youth hostel swimming pool into um a beautiful piece of artwork yeah it's a different creative challenge artwork to you know what i do most of the time in branding and design it's it is quite different um you have to really kind of think on your feet but when you're working with photographers like that it makes it a hell of a lot easier that was, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question. Is that, the, is that the largest kind of piece of art direction that you've done to date at that time? I think, um, yeah, probably. I'd, I'd done a few kind of music-related pieces um, mm. back in London for Universal and, yeah, some other clients there. And Benji was really good at kind of teaching me 
about art direction and how kind of on it you have to be at a shoot and especially with Benji they're so stressful because he's so kind of into the detail and mm. all the things you're looking for but if nobody teaches that you've got no idea what you're looking for mm. and um, I think it's really hard to design it's the first time they go on a shoot expecting them to be able to art direct it's something it's it's a real skill in itself and I've got a lot to kind of thank Benji for for stressing me out and taking me through <laughs> how to do it let's move on to the opera house branding yeah because we need to talk about that because you in 2016 you actually won a Cannes lion for that gold for motion and another one for typography another gold one for typography uh and then also a bronze for the branding mm -hmm. what made that job so special what, why, 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 it's, the, what it's the sydney opera house it's the sydney <laughs> opera house but why, why um why was it so special in, in, in the way that, um, that people just loved it so much? Because the Opera House has been through a number of different kind of branding scenarios, mm. it feels like, over, over the last decade. But this one seems to have really stuck. Mm. I think it, it's just the three-dimensionalness of it. There's, it's kind of cool that you, the Sydney Opera House, the, kind of the main thing that people associate with it is the architectural form and being yeah. able to bring that into a brand that the kind of the style of brands at the time was very flat and um, kind of typographic and, and simple colors. And this was maybe something quite different to that. Um, but something that if you pulled off in the wrong way could have been hideous, but the <laughs> fact that it was for the Opera House and the fact that we worked, got to work with an amazing typographer, I think is probably what pulled it through in the end. So let's talk about the typography first, because you, you actually, there was a typeface created for this, Utson, uh, yep. um, which is obviously based on the architect who designed the Opera House. Talk, talk to us about that because that's got some really interesting little um, elements that are probably quite new to branding, I would say. Yeah, so we'd kind of been cobbling together a, a 3D typeface in Illustrator, which, as you can imagine, was a bit dumpy and a bit kind of quite ugly. Once we kind of got the brand signed off, we engaged Lorenz Bruner, who had designed Circular, which was obviously a very fashionable font at the time. But... It was, a, it was a great base for us because it was so geometric and the, the Sydney Opera House has been designed with geometry completely in mind. So we spoke to him. He's based in Switzerland and Germany. And so over, I think, about a six-month period, me and um, Dan, who was also working there at the time, would finish our day's work and then wait two or three hours to have a Skype call with Lorenz, right. which was just so intense i mean <laughs> i love typography but this guy really loves typography <laughs> and really really in the detail and one thing that was was really great about it and i mean working for the opera house was that we wanted to build the typeface with structural integrity so it was designed in rhino a, a product design right because um, i was yeah. i was going to ask what what it was actually designed in yeah so it was really important that it was a product design um program so he built it in rhino and then all of the kind of lighting and effects was then recreated in I think in Illustrator so it was all vector based right the, I guess the two nice builds of that one it being as 3D files it meant that you could literally just print the letters off so if they wanted to do signage or if we we're doing a talk we'd literally just print those letters out and put them on the wall oh wow and then the second one was that we really wanted this to be usable usable for their in-house design team so I think a few years previously, Darling Harbour had happened at Interbrand um, with the big inflatable balloons. And yep, yeah. I think that was an, I absolutely loved that identity. But I think one of the things that held it back is that it was a bit of a drag and drop PSD kind of thing going on. It was, it was quite hard to work with. So we wanted a system that um, would just be really easy for the designers to use. So Lorenz worked with a scriptographer 
who I think was booked up for six months, but we managed to sneak it in. And he built this amazing InDesign script where you're typing in circular, you've got a little panel on the side, you select the text, you hit generate, and it, it turns it 3D, kind of just like magic. And um, yeah, it was cool. Wow. And then you've taken that geometric kind of styling and then that, that got taken into motion. Yeah, so we went through this whole process. I mean, the whole thing took about two years. So I did it right. Over a year had happened. We had kind of been signed off and then we had to go represent it. And everybody was really happy except for the motion element to the brand. Motion being such a huge part for the Sydney Opera House, obviously, because they have so much content and all of the, the different performances they have. They have a lot of supplied uh, footage that, that gets given to them. So having a motion toolkit that they could kind of drop together to make those assets ownable was really important. And we just hadn't really nailed it. We, we basically had this one shape that we were just moving around from left to right or up or down, and it had no kind of dimensional form. So we pitched out to try and find a motion partner that we could work with. And... Um, I asked our motion designer at the time, Conlon, who is brilliant, of who would you want to work with on this? And without, I hadn't even finished the sentence and he said Collider. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, I worked really close with Andrew, who's the CD over there. And yeah, it was this amazing process of, like working with Lorenz, he's an absolute expert in typography. Andrew and Collider, absolute experts in motion. So yeah, they again wanted to have structural integrity. So all of the forms that make the motion suite are all three-dimensional sculptures built in a 3D space. They rebuilt the Opera House in 3D so that they could get the logo animation to be exactly wow. like the logo. And yeah, it was yeah another amazing opportunity to work with somebody at the top of their game and so talented. So let's, let's go back to the actual branding now because the branding is all based off the sales, isn't it? Yeah, so when Cause, we... Because it's actually got a... I'm, I'm doing a strange thing for those... Doing like a cool little wave. For, for the <laughs> listeners at home, it's, it's got a curve to... Yeah, it's everything. got a, it's got a three-dimensional form that we can kind of drop onto any flat background in order to make it look three-dimensional. So the way that we got to this was right from the start of the process, we had a document called Utzon's Design Principles, which he'd written years and years and years ago before he'd been fired from the job. Right. And it basically set out his principles for how he designed the opera house, how he, what his like, philosophy was, and then also what his kind of thoughts were of how this should develop in the future. So interestingly he didn't get to design the inside of the building but he'd set out all these grand plans of how it should look it should be an absolute flood of color um white on the outside but a celebration of color and content on the inside and one of his principles was geometry so exactly the same with the typeface the reason we chose circular was that it was geometric and all of the the other forms that we created were also um, perfectly geometric as well tied with that the sculptural nature of the brand uh, that's where you kind of get to yeah, that, that form language that we created. Um, so at what point did you come into the project for the Opera House? Because you're someone that's from London. Um, and even when you're in Australia, you move straight to Melbourne. Yeah. And I do feel a bit <laughs> yeah, weird. Why did you get the job? I don't know. I feel really bad. The whole team was pretty much English <laughs> and a Colombian. But <laughs> there you go. Um, so, yeah, it was actually the first job that I got given when I moved up from Melbourne to Sydney was to design the pitch document. And was, it, was that the tease? Hey, if you came to Sydney, then... Uh. I don't, maybe, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but I remember getting this brochure that I was designing and I was kind of reading through. Damien had written this amazing thought piece about um, dreaming in public and, was, you know, 
really getting into it. I thought, this is incredible. This would be literally the best job ever if we won this. Was getting all the way through and then reached the team page of who was going to work on it. And I wasn't on the team. Uh. And I was just, <laughs> yeah, I had a little um, mini cry. And um, yeah, I think I just said, Ollie, we need to talk. If we win this, I have to be on this project. Like everybody in the studio just, you know, wanted to be involved. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity to work on something like this mm. but yeah in the end because so many people wanted to work on it we put two teams nearly killed the studio really um <laughs> yeah it was quite intense there was so there was two teams there was two routes that went forward and it was this kind of one was winning over the other then the next one and i think that's actually why it ended up so good because um even though it was not necessarily the nicest working environment being so competitive <laughs> absolutely pushing each other for oh my god have you seen how good their one looks we've got to make ours better to then pushing ours so far that then they're terrified and they keep pushing i think the other route that didn't go forward is kind of what made the the final one so good mm. so it's just kind of like standing on the shoulders of each other like exactly just pushing exactly. the envelope yeah yeah yeah. I'd love to see the other one. Is that, still, really is that still part of some pitch document that everyone? I keeps find it there? in random template folders. I go into like a poster mock-up and the other routes, and then kind of hide it quite quickly. But right, yeah, it, yeah, it looked great. It as well. actually just became the Melbourne Opera House, and <laughs> I'm sure they'd use it for something else. Yeah, yeah, cool. So let's leave Interan now and move to Landor. Yeah. So barely. Re- how how long has it been now? I think it's been about eight months. Right. What, what are the major differences? So... Apart from your position. Yeah. They are... I, I mean, we're working on similar projects, but they are quite different. I think previously uh, into brands, we'd... We kind of had this thing where we'd present where we wanted a bit more of a ta-da moment. And you'd kind of... I remember, like, Chris would just build these incredible presentations that were so bulletproof. But you'd go away and work on something for three or four weeks and then suddenly you just show this incredible presentation try and blow everyone out of the water. And that was the kind of process. I think that's changed a little bit now. Um, but coming to Landor, when I got offered the job, it was a guy called Giles, who's our ECD, uh, phoned me up and just started talking about what he was trying to do at Landor and, and his process. And he's a, a trained product designer. So for me, that was really interesting. I'd only ever worked for graphic designers. So the way that he works is, is very different to the way that I work. Uh, but he's brought some really interesting things into our business that um, I've never kind of experienced before. Like we work with psychologists a lot on all of our jobs. And okay. That just gives you, I mean, it just gives you such an incredible insight into the human mind and what kind of motivates them and what drives them. And if, you're, if you've got an understanding of that and if you can design to that, I think it just makes things so much more powerful. Can you give us an example of, of how you've been able to use that? Yeah, so we've been working with um, a finance company, um, not too dissimilar from a bank, um, and really getting to the heart of finance of what kind of stresses people out in every days. And she, gives us, she gave us an amazing kind of insight into that. Um, through working with her and through our strategy team kind of landed on this idea of this product allowing you to breathe a little bit easier um, just giving you that kind of space for your finances that you've got so many things coming in that this product can actually help you take control of your finances so the way that we then translated that into a brand was if it's all about breathing easy how could we build a brand that's like superhuman and what about the brand actually breathed itself so Ethan, one of our uh, designers, um, had this really cool idea that he started just filming himself breathing in and out. Really? And um, 
he created a kind of motion tracking uh, device that would kind of go up and down as he breathed in and out, in and out in a really, really calm way. And then he attached uh, parts of the brand, so like the logo, for example, to that motion tracking. So the logo just breathes in and out really, really slowly and really, really calm. And it has this really kind of nice calming in control <laughs> effect to it. But it was interesting because it allowed us to have this way of owning so many different assets. So photography or illustration, for example, just breathes in and out, in and out. And yeah, it's really nice kind of human insight that I don't think we ever would have got to that if we hadn't had the psychologist getting right to the core of that problem. Mm. Wow, cool. I was actually going to rewind it just a little bit because you're talking a bit, a bit more about process, mm. but you also were talking about um, who you report to. ECD, I think you said? Yeah, Giles. Who's ECD. a product designer? Yeah. So what is that like working with a product designer? You mentioned that it's quite different to working with the graphics, but how, like, how is it different? Well, I, th I think it's great for me because he brought me in because he, he doesn't understand brands you know, as much as I do. And he realized that he needed people in his team that could bring some of those expertise. So he kind of just lets me get on with doing my thing. And he has um, a kind of oversight across all of the projects in the studio. But he's a really creative kind of ideasy person. So somebody like you can go and talk to about almost any creative problem and you know, mm -hmm. he gets it, he understands. But it's good because he lets you then get on with what you think is the right answer. So it's a collaboration. It doesn't feel like you know, he's ever telling me what to do or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, is, is there more of a focus on, say, prototyping? And, and that, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think about the difference between product design and in your typical graphics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the other, talking about going from that massive Tatar moment, like we don't have any of that. So right. our process is really, really prototyping. So even on a branding project, we'll show stuff to the client after, sometimes after two or three days. Right, wow. Which is quite terrifying. Hmm. Um, and it's sketches, it's nailed to the wall, it's got bits of reference. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, because that first that first sort of ideation phase is is normally pretty messy. Yeah, but that's my favorite um, presentation of them all, to be honest. Really? It's when anything's possible, and um, you just come up with ideas. There's no wrong answers. I think you get some really interesting places because of that. So that kind of builds on that. Then a week later, you'll go back, you'll amend stuff. So the client's always on that journey, and they can have really good inputs early on. It means that you don't kind of go off on a tangent in a, in a completely different direction. It's going to the right place. And then probably the most terrifying thing that he's brought in is uh, co-creation sessions where we work with uh, six progressive consumers on each of these jobs. So after, again, it can be a week, we'll show it to real people. Sometimes I have to present to CFOs and CMOs and CEOs and all these really powerful people. But the scariest presentation I've done this year was to a group of 16-year-olds <laughs> a few weeks ago, oh. uh, showing them, yeah, three options on on a brand that we created, and they are brutal. Re tell us more. So, yeah, I presented the f I presented the first concept, and luckily they absolutely loved it, and it was great. But the second two after that, I could just see on their faces they hated it, <laughs> and they were just ripping it to shreds. Um, <laughs> the way that we set it up is that you know this is not our work. You can just say what you want. This is a safe place. That kind oh, of thing. Right. Inside, I'm dying. Wow. <laughs> um, it's good because you could easily go with one of those other routes, put it out in the market, and it's going to be nowhere near as successful. You learn so much from those sessions. Mm. And we never, that one was so clear cut. It was like 100% everybody loved one and yeah. it answered the brief so well. The others, they were just not interested at all. But sometimes, you know, it's really close and you're kind of debating. We never use those as a, a decision making tool. It's just to put things in, in front of people and see how they react. 
Mm. And um, and I'm assuming these 16-year-olds, they're, they're part of the target market that you're... Yeah, so they're all really kind of selected carefully. And they want to be progressive, so we're not just kind of showing anybody on the street. They will have an interest in it or they'll be an expert in something related to that. Right, okay. So another one of the things that we wanted to talk about was you recently did an Agda Pechacucha talk mm. uh, and the theme was positive impact and it was asking the question, what do designers or how do designers, uh, what role do they play in creating a more meaningful future? How, how did you find that experience and, and what did you talk about? Well, when I got that brief through my heart kind of dropped. That's <laughs> the last question Can I wanted. Can you please solve the biggest question for us in seven minutes? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, pretty terrified because I don't really like talking about the, that big kind of quite high and mighty stuff. I feel like... Have, have you done Petra Kucha before? No, that was the first one. Wow. So massive question and a very structured way of answering And for it. anyone that doesn't know, it's a very short amount of time to answer this, right? Yeah, Hello. so you have six minutes, 40 in total. So, so it's 20, 20, slides. 20 slides at 20 seconds each. Yeah. Yeah, which is anyone that's been on stage a couple of times knows that that's going to be very difficult to get an idea across in a short amount of time. Definitely. Yeah. It's more the fact that it rolls on as well automatically. So you just get yanked off stage and the next person... Well, no, so, so your next slide comes on. So there's no... You, you can't go on tangents. Right. So literally, it rolls on. We'd be, and we'd be annihilated. We would be annihilated. We'd, we'd still be. <laughs> we do a terrible we'd, job. We'd still be on the first slide. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I made the mistake of watching a few other videos before I did it. And uh, yeah, some people don't deal that well with it. And no. I watched Mike Rigby's, and it was like ridiculous. And I was like, oh my god, this is you know, very high expectations. It's a hard. That Mike Rigby one is a very. So that was about three years ago, four years ago, I think. Yeah. And that was uh, it was an incredible one, just so polished and so to the point. Yeah, I asked him about it, and he said that he wrote on the morning of the day, which yeah, made me even know. more. I don't annoyed. know if I believe that. <laughs> so tell us more about yours. Well, I mean, starting from that point, I think I really like to plan out everything I'm doing if I'm going to do a talk for this. When I had to do Best Man Speech a few years ago, and I was writing it for about 18 months, waking up <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning, writing down crazy notes. My girlfriend absolutely hated me. But it was, it was kind of similar for this one. I only had about six weeks, but it's kind of on your mind. And doing a Best Man Speech, I thought was the hardest thing I was ever going to do. When I finished that, I was like, it went really, really well. And... I just thought every presentation I do from now is going to be easy because the best <laughs> man speech is tough. But this is in front of your work colleagues. It's in front of the industry. Yep. Um, and it's just, this can't go, this can't go bad because this would be the end of my career. I'm going to leave Australia <laughs> if this goes bad. So I was determined to make it good. And I just put a lot of kind of thought into it around positive impact. And it was so alien to me that what does that actually mean for me? I kind of was just really honest about it and thinking about when I got into design, I didn't get into it to have a positive impact. There wasn't even something that entered my mind that designers could have a positive impact. Yep. I kind of set it up that I wanted to get into design because I wanted to design stamps or album covers or you know things that graphic designers love. Um, but then I don't really know where it comes from. Out of nowhere, suddenly you become a designer and people have this expectation that you've got to change the world. And... Yeah, I don't really know where that comes from, but I had this video clip, which I really, really love, which is from Bear Grylls, the island. And it just reminded me of kind of where I've come from and um, what my friends are doing. So my friends are policemen, they're plumbers, they're doctors, they're paramedics. They're like yep. 
proper jobs and they have a positive <laughs> impact, right? And I'm a designer, you know, they have no idea what they do. They think it's hilarious that I've won a yellow pencil and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. But I was watching Bear Girls the Island a few years ago and um, I don't know if you've seen the show, but it's basically a social experiment. They get 14 guys, they drop them on an island for six weeks and just see how they survive. And I've watched like quite a few series and the, f <laughs> is, the same thing happens every single time, but it's brilliant. And the first thing that they have to do is start a fire so that they can get safe drinking water and so that they can cook. Yep. And they always struggle it. They always go back to kind of, you know, the caveman thing of rubbing sticks together and it goes on and on and on and on. And they were all failing. But at the start of the series, they go around the circle and they kind of introduce themselves. And this is where I kind of feel weird introducing myself as a graphic designer because everyone's going around the circle and like, hi, I'm Pierce, I'm a doctor, and everyone's cheering, and hi, I'm Clive, I'm a paramedic, they're all cheering, and there's a guy that comes on and says, Andy Bennett, builder, Milton Keynes, and they're like, we've got a fucking builder! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's cheering and gets around to this uh, last guy who says, um, hi, I'm Sam, and I'm a website consultant, <laughs> and it's just absolute silence it's and i've seen that clip about 200 times and it makes me laugh every single time <laughs> oh wow so this is what you've got you've got going through your head when yeah this is what's going on in my head i'm a graphic designer <laughs> you know i'm completely useless compared to these people but the cool thing was is that when they went to start the fire no one could do it until this website guy realized that he could use his massive glasses uh, to magnify the sun <laughs> and and start a fire. What are you going to say? He just pulled his iPhone out and Googled it because he's the only guy that could have bring that. his iPhone. <laughs> um, but it just made me think that he thinks the same way that I think designers think that they think like problem solvers. And I started thinking about all the problems that designers can solve and what what little kind of um, positive things that they can put into the world so I guess the theme of mine was around it's about the little things for me and as designers I think that if we can make the world a little bit better uh, I think that's really good and I think to put a bit of meaning behind that it could just be a little bit more fun a little bit safer a little bit more beautiful I think is something that's probably overlooked slightly and you know the way that things are going a little bit more human uh, is going to be really really important for the future so that's what I kind of talked about. Uh, tried to show some examples of how I thought people had done that. So uh, I think Wanksy uh, was kind of a favorite of this guy in the UK who got so annoyed that of all the potholes uh, around in the road that he wanted to do something about it. And he basically just went around drawing cocks all over them. And uh, <laughs> it kind of forced the council to cover them over with tarmac. So in covering over his graffiti, they also fixed the roads. Right. And I just had a few kind of examples like that that made me smile that I thought were a different way of looking at the world that I think is kind of overlooked. Mm. Do you think studios do enough or approach that problem enough about what, what they can do more to improve the world or solve those bigger problems? I think it's something that, you know, everybody wants to work on a charity or something that's doing amazingly well. The... The issue with with that that always occurs is that there's never any money. So if you're working for a big business and you've got profits that you've got to meet to pay everyone's salaries, it's very hard to take on too many of those jobs. We, we had a really interesting one recently, though, where a company called Alina Vision um, approached us. And they kind of sound like a charity because they're trying to end avoidable blindness. And they are backed by Fred Hollows. Right. But something I think was really, really interesting. Rather than acting like a charity, they're actually a for-profit business. 
And what they're trying to do is um, improve or put some kind of eye care facilities into developing countries. So I think Vietnam to start with and then India and, and Thailand. And the reason that this hasn't worked in the past is that when charities go in there, they're not necessarily kind of uh, backed or trusted by the local people so anybody that's earning a high income in those countries they look at a charity and they don't really want to get their eyes fixed so they'll fly to another country normally china or america to get their to get their eyes sorted but what that means is that for the local community in those countries there is no kind of eye care for them and things like cataracts are one of the major causes of blindness but um if you don't get them fixed, then you can go blind. Yep. So the, the great thing that Alina Vision were doing by being a for-profit, it meant that they could get investments and by getting investment that they could actually go into these countries and build surgical centers properly. So it felt like a really, really legit place that those high income earners would then go, yeah, I'll get my, you know, I'll go there, I'll get my eyes sorted. And by building things properly and by building the trust in those people, it then allows Alina Vision to go out to those local communities and support them and, and help uh, people that previously would not be able to get their eyes to fix it all. So is this idea of like one one customer pays, and then one customer gets a benefit from that? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to the full business rundown, but I think mm. it works on a kind of subsidized approach by if you get the high income earners, they can slowly subsidize it, allows yep. them to get government grants, and then the people that really can't afford it, it's done for free. So it sounds a little bit like, um, do you remember that one, uh, one laptop per child? Yeah. And the, the idea they made this, amazing laptop that um that was basically all in one and this was quite a few years ago uh, and the idea was it was quite a popular kind of thing that a lot of people in western countries wanted and mm. the idea is you, you actually ended up buying two and one was given for free and and you got your one yeah absolutely sim- similar sort of yeah similar and i really like the way that a lot of businesses are going that way so uh thank you soap being a brilliant example i think of i've seen it in our house going from aesop soap like $50 a bottle for a luxury product and now we've got thank you everywhere in our house and it's $7 it looks beautiful it's a great piece of design and you know it's definitely making the world a better place mm. um, cool so we're out of time how can people find more about you do you have your own website I've got my own website uh, tomcary.co and actually you can see the Opera Australia stuff on there that we've yeah, been talking can. about. And actually there's a really nice um, Opera House. Uh, there's a couple of videos. Yep. There's, there's one that's really good that kind of shows all the um, geometric sort of studies that, that went into the work. Oh, cool. Hopefully I'll have some new stuff on there soon as well. Oh, very good. And um, Twitter or Instagram? Twitter, yeah. Tom Paul Carey. I think that's the same for both. Cool. Perfect. All right. We'll obviously put those in. Matt, where can people find you? Um, on Instagram Instagram yeah. <laughs> great uh, you can find me on anything at Flynn Tracy and you can find this episode or more at ausdesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter Instagram and SoundCloud at AUS Design Radio thanks Tom thanks, thanks Tom. Tom my pleasure <laughs>